So the format for tonight is going to be um, essentially the the pros and cons of our situation. I'm going to explain it in just a second, um, followed by a question and answer period. And somewhere in there, if you do have questions after one of the speakers has concluded, um, we can fit that in also if there's a pressing question. So the issue before us is about um, the National Association, um, uh, the Evangelical Free Church of America, their uh, joint, uh, I guess it was the, the actual national session in 2019, actually passed a resolution that changed the statement of faith significantly, um, the chief of which is Article Number 11, I believe, which um, goes from saying the premillennial, am I right, Lee? It's premillennial and imminent return of Jesus Christ. Do I have that right? I'm not reading off the statement of faith. Close. Okay. You should have a statement of faith in front of you. Let's see here. Yeah, here it is. So we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return. Um, That was inserted in place of um, premillennial, in essence, um, which creates a question about how we are interpreting an end, end times return of Jesus Christ. So that was passed, and Lee is going to actually um, speak on behalf of why we should not actually adopt this statement of faith. He was chosen to do so. We, we as elders, also chose Tim to represent the pro, why we should adopt the statement of faith. Churches need to ratify this, actually. The district needs to ratify this and either accept it or reject it um, within one year of its passing. And the reason is that we need to decide, are we going to be for it or against it? But what we're going to be doing on April 25th is, as a church, um, voting whether we are in favor of this change or not, and then electing delegates from our congregation to go to the district meeting in May to vote as one church. They don't, people don't vote their own mind. They're really electors here going on behalf of the church and they will vote at the district meeting. And then all the churches at the district meeting are going to vote for or against this. Um, and there are ramifications for that that should be obvious. Like, what do we do if we don't agree with it? Um, et cetera. So rather than belabor all that, I would like to just start in prayer and then we'll turn it over to Lee for the, uh, why not? Why this is a bad idea. So let's just bow in prayer. Thanks, Father, for um, gathering us here, for giving us the desire to serve your church, the desire to act wisely. Uh, I pray you would give us all wisdom and discernment and listening ears that want to hear um, what is the, the best path forward as we decide whether to stay with the old statement of faith or with the new. And I just thank you, Father, that you have equipped us and you promise us you'll give us wisdom in every case uh, if we just ask. And so we ask, Lord, give us wisdom now and uh, and give us kindness as we in our words and in our disposition toward each other as we talk through this. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Lee Kissman, our district super, is going to come up. Can you hear okay through this mic? Okay. He's going to take the uh, big mic. Good afternoon, friends. Is this on? Doesn't seem on to me. All right. Um, 
to clarify, I'm going to give you the reasons why someone might vote no. I'm not telling you to vote no. Um, but Pastor Tim and I both agreed to take these sides of it so people just get a thorough explanation of the rationale, not just that we personally might use, but that everybody has been delving into for the last three years. And we're actually all on the same side, and that's the side of Jesus. And we're pro-Jesus and pro-return of Jesus. And there's no dispute about that. But what this really gets into is the fine points of the end times scheme that people see in the Bible. And before I give you a little bit of the thinking um, in opposition to the amendment to change our statement of faith, I wanted to give you just a little bit of history um, because we did that last week. I think that's posted online, and I'm not going to try to reproduce what I explained last week because I don't think I could, even if I wanted to, um, and, and probably shouldn't if I wanted to. I think I went a little long. Um, but the history on this whole issue is just that the Evangelical Free Church, um, as an association, or some people are willing to call it a denomination now, although... People were reluctant to do that for decades because all the churches are independent. But we like to say interdependent. You govern your own affairs, but we're a family. And so in 1950 is when we got started, and that was from a coming together of the Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian free churches um, at a conference Adopting a statement of faith, which we call the 1950 Statement of Faith, which had 12 items on it. And it was item number 11 on that original one that had our, um, there we go, woo! Uh, You might have a copy of the 1950 Statement of Faith handed out to you. So if you do, could you just grab that for a minute? And that will really help. Um, So what you're looking at here was our statement of faith from 1950 all the way up until 2008. 58 years. And you'll see there uh, the um, article in question is number 11, which said, We believe in the personal and premillennial and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and that this blessed hope has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. And those three words there were real critical. Personal in that we believe it is this same Jesus who ascended into heaven after his resurrection. It's the same Jesus that is coming back. And it said premillennial specifically because the free church congregations at that time were all um, pretty much unanimous in that they believed that Jesus would come to establish uh, the millennial kingdom as you read about in Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 in there. And imminent, which means soon, is the word Jesus often used and the apostles used. But the idea of at any time, and you know all the things that Jesus said about 
us being ready for his return and that we don't want to be surprised. And um, I think the emphasis is just as much on being surprised because you weren't about the master's business as just being surprised because you couldn't possibly ever know what was going on. But for sure, if you were distracted and sinning or not focused on the Lord's work, all the parables that he told, you would be surprised and caught off guard. But he, Jesus did say, the Son of Man will come in an hour you do not think. So however you slice it, there's just that flavor in the teachings of the Gospels, you know, Jesus' words. And the emphasis on readiness, of course, is carried through in the epistles, um, Paul and John and Peter, all three. Well, what happened in 2008 is that that was the first time that we ever really revisited this original statement of faith of the free church. And at that time, there were some that were interested in taking the word premillennial out of the statement of faith. Because in the larger Christian family, and even some within our denomination, would say maybe there's no such thing as a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And some people teach in Christendom at large that we're actually in the kingdom right now. And so that was suggested, and our heritage committee undertook a rewrite of our statement of faith. And in fact, the end result was twofold. Number one, it was decided to leave the word premillennial in there. Because in 2006, 7, and 8, there was quite a bit of pushback. And the consensus was not to take it out at that time. However, secondly, there was kind of a major rewrite of the whole statement of faith. And I don't know if you have the 2008 version in front of you. Yeah, that's the one with all the headings there. Statement of faith with the big bold headings. Um, And you'll see them numbered on two sides. One through ten. So that's the 2008 statement of faith. And if you compare the two, you will see that the new one um, maybe is a better overall thorough statement of faith. It it includes some things that weren't in the original one and also compacted a few items like the church itself was probably took up three articles in the 12-point version, and I think it's been reduced to one in the new one. And, uh, but the difference is on the return of Christ, if you're looking at the 2008 version, number nine, Christ's return, you'll see that the change there is that it, it, they removed the word imminent. So the 2008 one says we believe in the personal. Oh, no, this is, this is the 2019 one. I'm sorry. You don't have the 2008 one. That's the in-between one. 2008 took out the word imminent, but it left the word premillennial in. And the word uh, imminent and being taken out gave freedom for people that were maybe believing about the rapture, that it was before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, maybe toward the end of the tribulation, maybe before the wrath of God was poured out, but before the second coming, whatever. That gave more flexibility on that, on the rapture. The 2019 one is the one we're going to be voting on, and that's the one that you have here. I apologize. 
And you'll see that the word premillennial is removed. Um, but another word was added, which is not a replacement of premillennial, but it is just another biblical term that was added that the uh, committee felt captured the great body of New Testament passages about the return of Jesus Christ is that it will be glorious. He will come in power and great glory. That's Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Um, In taking out the word premillennial, it basically gives the free church a larger tent, a more open fellowship in terms of people's views about end times things. You probably have studied, and I know as a church you've had opportunities to study over the last year or two, the three or four different major views about the millennium that Christians have had historically and have today. There is the pre-millennial view, which believes that or teaches that Jesus will return and establish a kingdom for a thousand years, um, quite exactly as it says in Revelation 20, after which... There will be a final rebellion of Satan and um, his forces, and then will come the eternal state after the great white throne judgment. The amillennial view teaches that the thousand-year reign of Christ is figurative and is more or less synonymous of the eternal state. So that Christ, when he returns, will generally sort everything out, judge the living and the dead, and we will go to the final state of things immediately without a thousand-year reign exactly in the Holy Land, um, as the premillennialists would insist. And the third major view is the postmillennial view, which teaches that we are, in a sense, in the kingdom now and that the gospel will succeed as it is preached until the whole world pretty much comes to Christ and then he will return and sort everything out. And again, there is no literal kingdom, thousand year kingdom. It would be symbolic for this present church age of things. The premillennial view, of course, can be sliced or diced two or three different ways as well. And we won't work on that today. But anyway, that's what the new statement does. It just gives wiggle room for all of those views to be permissible in evangelical free church so that we can potentially ordain pastors that hold any one of those three views and there would be no shame and no censure, no restrictions in the denomination for holding a pre-mill, ah-mill, or post-mill view. And it allows churches to enter into our denomination where the distinctive of the church might be one of those three, or none of them. They might just say we're agnostic on it and we are not going to emphasize any of them. But for sure, the regime is from now on, All new pastors and all new churches coming into our denomination must agree to the openness of the new statement. And what that means is that you can be premillennial personally or amillennial or postmillennial. You don't have to be 
something that you're not. Neither does your church. But we are establishing a new climate for our association that we will not censure or shame those who hold a view different than yours. We will accept them as brothers and we will agree to disagree and we will just live with the tension of not knowing for sure. Even if you feel you know for sure, um, you cannot burn at the stake those who hold the other view. That's the new rule. And so uh, that's what we're dealing with now. And um, so I'm going to move on to just um, in a condensed form giving a little bit of the rationale for those who would say, no, I don't want to sign the new statement of faith and I don't prefer that we adopt it. First, I will talk about um, what seems insufficient about the amillennial view and the postmillennial view. So we'll talk about this in the negative sense. And then after that, in the positive sense, we'll talk about why a person would be so premillennial with conviction. Uh, they both play into the reasoning. First, the postmillennial view um, emphasizes that the Christ has come, the Messiah has come, and where the king has come, and where the king has not only given authority to the church, but rules and reigns through the church by his own power. The postmillennial view would say that we are in the kingdom now. Uh, there are variations of this. There's some really strong dominion theology out there right now where some groups say, basically, in the power of God, we are going to eventually take over every sector of society. The educational sector, the political sector, the business sector, right? And the religious sector. And as one um, man put it to me, um, it is an optimistic view of the gospel that sees the gospel conquering through the preaching of the gospel until all the world comes to the obedience of faith. And at that point, Christ will come. Um, for those of us that are ardently premillennial, we find that view of things um, unacceptable. And our belief is that the scripture presents, yes, a commandment to preach the gospel, and yes, an assurance that there always will be those who will receive the gospel and come into the sheepfold. But that in no way does the New Testament teach that all will come to faith. In fact, more along the line of what Jesus says is that there's a narrow gate and few are those who find it. And on the other hand, the road that leads to destruction is broad and many are those who find it. And so we believe that the New Testament picture is that there will be believers coming to Christ. We will gather in our churches, whether they be small or relatively large, but compared to the world population, we will always be in the minority. And that in Jesus' name, we will not indeed conquer and subdue this world's powers. No, not until Jesus comes. And so 
we see the bright light of the gospel shining always against the dark backdrop of a unbelieving and perverse generation, as Paul puts it in Philippians. We are like shining stars in the midst of this dark and perverse generation. And along those lines, we believe that Jesus, who you could never say is pessimistic, but in terms of this present age coming around, he just told us in his upper room discourse that if the world hated him, be sure of this, that it will hate us. So our concern for the post-millennial view is that really it presents a false premise and a false hope to people in this current church age and that we're really setting people up to be disappointed and possibly to be violently disappointed if the world should appear to consume us and try to devour us. Um, If their expectation is that it will be better and better and better, How will they find a footing for their faith if, in fact, that doesn't happen? So a post-millennial kind of a scheme has always been around in the church, and different groups espouse it more. And really, um, most historians feel that certainly in most recent times that World War I and World War II and the advent of the nuclear age really shattered a general sense of optimism and the popularity of post-millennial teaching. Concerning amillennialism, because it equates the thousand-year return of Christ more or less with the eternal state, um, premillennials find that also unsatisfying. For a couple of key reasons. Number one, I feel it does not take seriously enough national and physical Israel in the scheme of God's promises and in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And time would never permit us to go into all of those things now. But the premillennialists believe that God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David are quite detailed. They are unilateral covenants that God made and it pertains to a land and a people and to specific kinds of blessings as well as the ultimate rule and reign of this ultimate scene of David, the Messiah, not just over Israel but over the whole earth. And we feel that those promises have never been nullified. In fact, we feel that Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that the covenants of God are irrevocable. And so rather than seeing the church as in any way replacing Israel, we see the church as being blessed to be grafted in to the main root, which is Christ, But we are the unnatural branches, not the natural branches. And Paul calls the Jews the natural branches, saying that they have been temporarily broken off because of unbelief, but in the end, there will be a great coming to faith of Israel. And um, so we like the order better, the Jew first and also to the Greek, as Paul puts it 
in Romans 1.16, where he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God under salva- unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And it doesn't believe that we don't, it doesn't mean that we don't believe in a church that has room for both Jew and Gentile in it. Um, we all come to Christ on the same basis, the basis of faith in him. Everyone is saved on that basis. We're clear about that. But we just don't want to eliminate the special place and the primacy of physical and national Israel in God's scheme of things. He worked through Israel as a channel of blessing. From the very beginning, God said to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we don't have a problem at all. In fact, we would insist on that when Christ comes, the promise of restoring the kingdom to Israel says a lot about God's promises, about his character, and about the sum total of his word generally speaking. Uh, Restoring the kingdom to Israel was the question that the apostles asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? to Israel doesn't say to the church it's to Israel and he said that after he had taught them about the kingdom for 40 days it says after his resurrection so um, I for one um, regret that the word kingdom Christ's kingdom is not in the language of our doctrinal statement because that was the great hope of the Old Testament it was the great Joy when people heard the gospel first preached by Jesus and John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, They knew what that meant. And there's a whole Old Testament portrait of the kingdom that has real time and real place elements to it. So the primacy of Israel is one thing. And then the second thing which is a corollary to that, is the tendency to symbolize or allegorize a lot of the promises in the Old Testament made to Israel and to say those things will not literally come true in all the details, but they are seen as folding in to Christ's blessing for the church and that they just really pertain to the final state, not any kind of an earthly kingdom. And so this is not something that everybody um, appreciates. And at first glance of the doctrinal statement change, uh, you would never go to the second level of difficulty with it. But the change in statement, everybody could subscribe to. We do believe in the personal and bodily and glorious return of Jesus Christ. We do. It's what's not stated that may be problematic that some of us are wrestling with. And so dealing with the amillennial and postmillennial positions is part of that. And in that, especially, well, for both of them really, the tendency toward allegorizing or symbolizing the scriptures is a difficulty. Now we all know reading the Bible is tough and when you read the scriptures, especially some 
major Old Testament passage, especially in the prophets, which is very much almost poetic or prosaic. Not to mention just a whole genre of scripture like Daniel or Revelation. Um, You wonder how much of it you take exactly literally and how much of it is symbolic when it talks about beasts, right? And you know it means a person or a nation. Um, You have to kind of work your way through that evaluating what kind of literature is and what is the intent of the writer. Uh, Most evangelicals are committed to reading the scripture in a plain sense, in a generally a literal, historical, and grammatical, faithful sense. And um, when you come to the point where saying, well, this is symbolic and it doesn't mean what you think it means, Um, that is potentially dangerous ground. So one of the difficulties with the amillennial position, and I'm sorry I'm being so technical here, but on the one hand, um, we're concerned about the place of Israel in the scheme of things, but on the other hand, also we're concerned about the tendency toward allegorizing Scripture. And when you say that about one doctrine, at what point will you not allow yourself to allegorize on other doctrines? Now, there's no, there's nothing on the table right now for that. But there are other heresies in the church where people allegorize other things, even heaven and hell, and say, well, it doesn't mean what you think it means. And one of the most um, dangerous things about religion and interpreting scriptures is the way that you explain things to people that may not seem clear and explain away the sense of the text. And if you've ever read commentaries on passages of the Bible, you may have run across this where you think you know what it means and then you read what a scholar says and he says, well, it doesn't at all mean what you think it means. Um, So... One of the great examples of this, by the way, is Matthew 24, where you're reading along and some people say, well, I know exactly what that means, and it's about the great tribulation and the end of the world and the return of Christ. And then you'll have other people say, well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It's talking about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. Just putting quite a different slant on it. Same word, same thing, but how specifically do you read it? One of the questions that we have, too, is how seriously can you take the book of Revelation or the writings of the Apostle Paul, who so specifically talks about the return of Christ, the Antichrist, the great judgments, the great times of tribulation. Thessalonians has a lot of that language, especially, and so does Revelation, obviously, But premillennial people have a very difficult time of explaining away Revelation 21 through 4. Um, You can say that the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ is symbolic for this present church age, or you can say it's symbolic for heaven and the future state. But if you just read it, 
there is a sequential chronological sense to those verses. First this, and then that, and then after that. And what you have is the first resurrection and saints ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And after that, a final rebellion. And then a second resurrection of all the dead and a general judgment we call the great white throne judgment. And then you have scenes of heaven in the new Jerusalem. Um, So there's a lot of gymnastics that are accomplished as you comb through that to try to make it say one thing or the other. Um, But it seems difficult to do away with the chronological sense of that, that there is an order, a sequence in those events. I'm going to leave all that behind and just talk about good reasons for the premillennial view. First of all, when you look at the Old Testament portrait of the kingdom, there is a lot of detail. And unless you can prove otherwise, I think it's good to appreciate the prophetic scheme of the kingdom of God and to take it very seriously even in its detail, just as we took seriously uh, the prophecies about Christ that were fulfilled in his first coming. I made quite a point of this last week. But at Christmas time and at Easter, we look at all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, both in his birth, in his earthly ministry, and in his death. Several dozen of them that thrill us as we appreciate how exactly the word of God came true. And... um, whether it's him being born in Bethlehem or fleeing to Egypt, growing up in Nazareth, um, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, actually having his hands and feet pierced, uh, the things he cried out on the cross, being laid in a rich man's grave, all those things we find in the Old Testament prophecies. And we just we are thrilled to see how God and his power accomplishes his word. And so we say, why not things that have not yet been fulfilled in terms of the promise of the Messiah ruling and reigning over the whole world? Why not take those prophecies just as seriously and looking for them to be fulfilled so exactly, in detail? Secondly, we look at what Jesus Christ talked about beginning his ministry by proclaiming the kingdom, asserting its reality all through his ministry. And just before his ascension, when he was questioned about it, did not deny that there was such a thing, but told them there was something else to do for now first, which was to preach the gospel to all the nations. But he did not rebuke the apostles for asking him about restoring the kingdom to Israel. We see that in Acts chapter 1 and then in Acts chapter 3 in Peter's second sermon in Acts after they healed the, the lame beggar, I think. Peter told his Jewish audience at the time in Jerusalem that Jesus was in heaven at the right hand of the Father at the present time until the time of the restoration of all things, which the prophets spoke about. And so we believe that the apostles' language and expectation was that Christ has ascended into heaven. He is there, ready to return again in power and great glory. And when he does, 
he will come to restore the kingdom just like the prophets talked about. That's what Peter said. Also, I think it is without dispute that the early church, and really for uh, not only a couple generations, but really for a couple centuries, uh, there was that kind of an expectation that Christ would return and restore the kingdom to Israel, first of all, for their promises, but that we would be part of that. And it really didn't become prominent or popular to see figuratively or allegorically or symbolically the kingdom as something else until probably after the 4th century A.D. And um, you know some of the proponents of that allegorical method. Augustine is one, Origen is another. There are several who taught that there will, no, there will be no restored kingdom to Israel. That is just Christ coming to rule and reign with his church, and it will just be the end of all things. And the reason why, I believe, is because Israel was wiped off the map because of great destructions under the Romans in 70 A.D. and again in like 120, 125 A.D. There was no political identifiable national Israel on the map anymore. The Jews were scattered throughout the nations to the east, to the north, to Africa. They had their synagogues everywhere, but there was no temple. There's no Jerusalem as a capital city of Israel. There's no political Israel anymore. So I believe it made perfect sense to the church really for 1,500 years to say, how could, they, how could these promises possibly be literally fulfilled? Um, Israel's gone. Face it. It would only be fulfilled in the church. Uh, we believe that um, that tendency continued not only through the years of the Middle Ages and basically the Roman Catholic Church dominating European Christianity, But right on through the Protestant reformers, you don't see a reformation in eschatology or end times things from any of the reformers, not from Luther, not from Calvin, not from the leaders of the church in England or Scotland. Amillennialism was really the order of the day. All the way through probably until the 1800s. And one interesting thing began to happen, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and there was a kind of a Zionistic movement of Jews returning to Israel, leaving all the countries of Europe where they were often persecuted, whether it be France or Russia, Germany, what have you. Uh, You know, the Jews had a hard time under the Catholic reign, hard time under some of the reformers, Terribly persecuted. But as uh, Jewish people began to stream literally back to Palestine, as we called it, all the way through World War I, this continued. And with the terrible treatment of the Jews in Germany during the Holocaust, that all came to a crescendo when at the end of World War II, um, a national entity was created for the Jews and marked out the modern state of Israel in 1948. And that was really the culmination of that Zionistic movement of Jews streaming back to the Holy Land, which is why you had in some 
evangelical circles a great interest in prophecy and emphasis on national Israel, not just after 1948, but really in the late 19th century and early 20th century leading up to 1948. 1948 was the icing on the cake for a lot of evangelicals. And the, the view was wonder and exhilaration that there ever could be such a thing as national Israel again. And so the free church um, is just representative of a lot of evangelical groups who began to teach without apology or hesitation a premillennial view that maybe God could keep some of his promises actually and specifically pertaining not just to the church, but Israel and the church and all of us and do an amazing thing in our own day. And so uh, I think for many of us, we've had that experience of, of a lot of prophecy conferences and a lot of Old Testament teaching weaving together the Old Testament context for a lot of New Testament promises and seeing how God works through it all, through Israel first, but then beyond Israel to all of us as Gentiles for what he's going to do. And therefore we feel when you see the the thousand-year kingdom mentioned in Revelation 24, it is not an isolated, standalone concept. All it really is is touching on the obvious and the well-known that that is the culmination of all those Old Testament promises. And um, some see it as very strange and that we as millennialists are a quaint group, but I would counter and say, no, we feel that we are in the center of biblical uh, prophetic thinking and teaching. So, to summarize... We feel that saying that the kingdom is now, in any sense of its fullness, is unsatisfactory. And we feel that saying that the kingdom is symbolic for the eternal state also does not satisfy. Does not satisfy the Old Testament prophetic scheme, does not satisfy what Jesus talked about talking about gathering Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the saints of all time together with the Gentiles, it does not satisfy. It does not satisfy the New Testament presentation of the return of Christ that we see in Acts and the epistles. And we believe they do not satisfy this present generation. I I would say a final argument to consider is look what is happening to our world right now. And as a preacher, I could say, who in their right mind believes that we're in the kingdom now in its fullness? Um, We feel pretty safe in America as Christians. We have up until this day, but that has not been true around the world. And it's getting to not be true for us. It seems ironic to me that we would adopt a post-millennial permission in our eschatology when it might be the most absurd position you could ever hold when we see hell unleashed on earth in our own generation maybe quicker than any of us realize it 
And it seems difficult to me that you could preach post-millennialism and say, we're already there in the next coming two decades. It might appear to be ridiculous and so misleading. In fact, it might lead people to conclude that we're truly insane (laughs) if it gets to be that extreme. We believe the early Christians clearly had it that even though there is a sense in which the king has come and there is a down payment of kingdom things, clearly, as we experience Jesus as king and as our church lives under the rule and reign of Christ. But the early church was persecuted and longed for the day when it would finally be put to rest and interrupted all that persecution when Jesus himself came back to make all things right. And um, so there's so much more I could say. Um, If you have my statements from last week about some of these things, it'll make a little sense to you maybe if you weren't here last week. But I would say if you're really interested in more detail on it, maybe a little better elaboration on those things, it's online posted from last week. So I'll just leave it at that. Any questions? I'm sure your brain is just swirling at 4.30 in the afternoon. So we'll just leave it there for now. Kim? Thank you, Lee. We, we really appreciate you driving up here two weeks in a row to, uh, to speak to us. And uh, also really, really appreciate your, uh, your passion for this. You know, we are, Paul, Paul talks about how we need to love the appearing of Christ. You know, we, we look forward to that. Jesus says, be ready. Uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the rationale for the, for the change. And let me, let me just begin by uh, going on record saying that, that my view is premillennial. You know, I, 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 uh, okay, read my lips. You can do it now. Okay. Anyway, um, so. I've I've spent a lot of hours uh, listen, listening to recordings on the uh, the EFC website from uh, past conferences, reading documents, document after document. Uh, there's there's a lot of really good material out there if you if you really want to delve into this and see what's going on. I there, there's a lot there's a lot out there for for you to see. Let me um, let me just kind of. Uh, start out by uh, saying what, laying out the rationale for the change, the rationale for the change. The the, uh, Evangelical Free Church of America, I'll call it the EFCA, that's a good syllable conservation, uh, attempts to uh, major on the majors and minor on the minors. Okay, that, that statement comes up all over the place. There's a principle in the EFCA which is called the, uh, the Significance of Silence. And that's based on a book by uh, Olson, Arnold T. Olson, which is called The Significance of Silence. 
And the, uh, the point of that is that uh, we will agree to discuss and debate, but not divide over secondary issues. And so the rationale is that uh, this, this is a secondary issue. If you look at the statement of faith and you start, you start from the top and go down, there, there, are, some, there are some items here that, um, you know, I, I'd say if, if we were saying that we're, we're going to take these out of here, I'll, I'll lead the charge out the front door, okay? You know, we, we do believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but, you know, the, the statement of faith here <laughs> takes a very high view of God. It better. These are, these are the things that define us as Christians. If, if we disagree with these things you know we've we've got some serious issues we're we're we we've turned into a cult you know the bible we we uh believe in the inerrancy of of the bible the inspiration of the bible you know god has revealed himself to us through the bible the human condition we we're sinners all of us you know, none righteous, no, not one from our uh, our parents, Adam and, and Eve. You know, the uh, human condition, they sinned. We're subject to God's wrath. We, we need salvation, which is provided by Jesus Christ. We can go down here, look at what it says about Jesus. You know, he's, he's God. He provided that, uh, that substitute, that sacrifice that uh, purchases our, our pardon, you know, he's given us atonement. Uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, we're, we're, we're born of the Spirit. Our salvation is through the uh, regeneration of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, all the things he does, he guides us, he illuminates, he teaches us, he convicts us of, of sin. Uh, the church, Christian living, uh, how we're to live, the, the eternal destiny, all this now... The one thing that is not in this new statement of faith is is that word uh, premillennial, and that's that's considered to be something that is not of the same rank, the same dogmatic rank as as these other issues. Um. According to Arnold T. Olson, he was he was the second president of the uh, the EFCA. He was he was the president for twenty years. So a lot of a lot of the EFCA, uh, you know, foundational literature was was written by him. He said that um, those doctrines, the the secondary of secondary issues, are those doctrines which through the centuries have divided Christians of equal dedication biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love of Christ. And I give you a lot of examples. One, one is baptism, you know, the, uh, the mode of baptism, how old somebody is to be baptism, whether somebody is baptized as a believer or not. There's room in the EFCA to uh, sprinkle infants. 
the Lord's Supper, different views about uh, Christ's presence in, in the elements. You know, the, uh, the Lutheran view, which is very similar to the Catholic view, where, you know, the God's body and blood are there in, in the elements versus a, a symbolic view. Well, they're just, these elements are, are symbols of Jesus's body and blood. A lot of things are not in this statement of faith. The, the age of the earth, you know, is, is the earth uh, young or is it old? Uh, you know, a big debate in, in Christianity and church history throughout the years, and this, this is definitely one that has never been resolved, is the debate between uh, Calvinism and Armenianism, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. There have been wars fought about this, people murdered over this. Uh, what else? Eternal security. Uh, spiritual gifts, whether they've ceased, the sign gifts, or whether they continue in today, that is not addressed in the statement of faith. That's a very important issue for a lot of people. Uh, we could go on and on. The time of the rapture. Which Bible translation is the best? Some churches have in their statement of faith that a particular version of the Bible is the God-inspired translation and everything else is, is from the, the devil. You know, that's, that's definitely something that I don't think belongs in a statement of faith. Well, the change to the statement of faith, is, as Lee said, removes that word premillennial from the statement that uh, concerns Christ's return. And uh, as, as he said, that word glorious, uh, that's actually a pretty good addition. I'm glad they put that in there because there's, I think there's over a dozen verses that call the return of Christ glorious. And it is. Jesus is going to return in glory. So I'm not here to argue a different view on, on millennialism. I, I am pre-millennial, but I don't think that's really what, what's at issue here. Um, First of all, there are a lot of different versions of premillennialism, many different theories. And, uh, you know, the uh, principle of exclusivity of, of truth says that some of them are wrong. They're theories. Uh, the early church tended towards a uh, version of premillennialism called uh, historic premillennialism, which is different from dispensationalism. Uh, oh, by the way, there are different versions of dispensationalism, multiple versions. The question is, are we going to refuse fellowship with people who don't agree with our particular view of eschatology? This is, this is a matter simply of unity versus division. Unity versus division. Um, you know, I, I do acknowledge that there are Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love of Christ, as A.T. Olson said, who hold different millennial views from me. And I'm glad to debate and discuss with them. And I'm glad to fellowship with them. You know, if, if every one of these other views or every one of these items is adhered to by a person, I will gladly embrace that person as a brother or sister in Christ and grant them full fellowship. I'd be happy to fellowship 
This isn't saying that this is not an important topic. I say, let's, let's fellowship. Let's, let's talk about this, though. There are a lot of issues I'd probably like to talk about. There are, uh, as, as Lee talked about through, through the history of, of the church, you know, there many great preachers of the, uh, the great awakenings were, were post-millennial. Jonathan Edwards was post-millennial. Charles Finney. Uh, this this was the dominant view actually before the Civil War. The Civil War, I think, was was a a, a big blow to post millennialism. World War One definitely. You know there was there was a, a in the eighteen hundreds a, a world missions movement, and a lot of the the world mission movement leaders were saying, you know what, this world is we're going to have the word out to the whole world. The whole world's going to be evangelist evangelize some of them said within five or ten years very very optimistic but you know it looked like yeah we've got it you know we're going to usher in the kingdom um augustine was a millennial um that was a dominant view for most of church history um among the famous amillennialists are uh you might recognize some of these j.i packer b.b warfield martin luther john calvin Each of these three views is is considered to be orthodox. They all fall within the umbrella of, of orthodoxy. Although, if you're an amillennialist, you probably don't consider the other two to be orthodox. If you're a premillennialist, you don't consider the other two to be orthodox. Oh, here's a side note. Um, did you know that the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are premillennial? As, as well as most of the modern cults are, are premillennial. During the uh, Reformation, the uh, the uh, radical reformers were premillennial. Most of those guys were pretty whacked out, and uh, actually, some of them uh, conducted revolts where many people were were murdered. That's not to say premillennial is wrong or that it leads to cultishness. I'm premillennial. What is it that makes these cults cults, though? It's because these other items they don't agree with. They're wrong about Jesus. They're wrong about God. They're wrong about many things. But they're premillennial. Uh, we we do have evidence that the er, the very early church was predominantly premillennial. Uh, Justin Martyr wrote. Between uh, he, he lived between 100 and 165 A.D. He, he wrote about premillennialism in his uh, dialogue with Trofo. Uh, he, he affirmed his expectation that the, uh, the faithful departed would rise from the dead and reign with Christ for a thousand years in, in a rebuilt Jerusalem. But he admitted openly that not every Christian at that time held that same view. Let me quote him. He said, I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place. But on the other hand, many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Uh, he he had the humility and he had the, uh, the charity to uh, grant leeway to others who, who disagreed. 
uh, back to Arnold T. Olson. He wrote a book called This We Will Believe, and he he was talking about the premillennial view in, in the statement of faith that was adopted in, in 1950. By the way, the uh, historically, the free churches didn't have anything in their statement of faith about premillennialism. It was in 1950, two years after Israel was uh, recognized as a nation, and it was pretty much driven from that. But he wrote in this book, we, this we believe, about this premillennial in inclusion in the statement of faith he said this view reflects the time in which it was started the association and the attitudes of evangelical leaders during the years of its existence while new voices are now calling for a new evangelism evangelicalism and a reappraisal of the teaching pertaining to eschatology the evangelical free church statement will continue to stand until it no longer reflects the view of the majority. He wrote this in 1961. So here's what happened. June 19, 2019, the delegates of the 132nd EFCA conference approved the motion to amend Article 9 of the Statement of Faith. 79% of the voting delegates affirmed the motion. So in 1961, Olson said that uh, this item was subject to change depending on the majority view of the uh, denomination or the uh, association. He recognized, he acknowledged this item was not in the same category as the other items. He would never say this about these other things, that they're subject to the majority view of the churches. The affirmations in the SOF, the statement of faith, are considered theological essentials because they relate to our salvation. They're they're vitally connected to the gospel. And premillennium does not premillennialism does not meet these criteria. That's that's why it was taken out. Uh, I, I've talked to several people in our congregation about this change, and. Uh, there, there's some things I think we need cleared up because I think there's a lot of misinformation. And so I'd like to talk about what this change does not mean. You know, it does not mean that we no longer believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. That's, that's item number two there. That doesn't change. It does not mean that eschatology is not important. This is absolutely something we need to dig into and understand and work on harmonizing the the scriptures, the passages and the verses that talk about it because we know prophecy is, it, it permeates the Bible. You know, we, we can't ignore it. It does not mean that we cannot teach premillennialism. I do not have any intention to changing <laughs> what I teach here. Uh, it does not mean that we now have to teach amillennialism and postmillennialism. It does not mean that at all. We might talk about it as in, <coughs> here's this other view, and here's why I don't, I don't think that, for instance, amillennialism is a good choice. One of the things that Lee didn't mention about amillennialism is in Revelation 20, it talks about... Uh, 
Satan being bound and, and chained and thrown into the pit and the lid closed. I don't see that. That doesn't pass the reality test if the millennium is happening right now. It does not mean that we have to give equal weight to these views. It, it does not, by the way, it does not take away the autonomy of the local church. In fact, it increases the autonomy of the local church. It says no longer are you bound by the association to teach one view. You can, you can hold whatever view. It, it'd be like if, um, say, there's a, there's a motorcycle helmet law. Everybody's got, everybody who rides a motorcycle has to wear a helmet. And the national, our, our federal government says, okay, we're going to pass a law. The states have voted by majority. We're going to revoke the helmet law. You no longer have to wear a helmet. What are they doing? They're loosening up. They're not saying you can't wear a helmet. They're saying you no longer have to. They're giving you more autonomy. That is what is happening here. The churches have more autonomy. We still, you know, we're going we're gonna to teach premillennialism here. That's not going to change. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that the uh, EFCA is liberal, becoming more liberal. Some of the loudest and most ardent voices for um, Or excuse me, against liberalism were, were amillennial in the fundamentalist liberal controversy in the early 1900s. B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, was, was very uh, anti-liberal, very conservative. It does not... It, is, it was not something that was secretly slipped in and, and ramrodded through by the national office. This was voted by 79, or approved by 79% of the uh, voting delegates. And it was talked about for a long time. This, this would be the majority that, that Olson was, was talking about. Uh, I don't believe the slippery slope argument applies here. We're, we're not going to be performing gay marriages in five years because of taking out the word premillennial. There's no, no connection whatsoever or, you know, whatever, whatever other issue you may, you may be worried about. You know, this is, this is an issue of unity versus division. You know, we need to ask ourselves, what issues are important enough to where we would refuse full fellowship to a person or a church Four, would we deny membership or break fellowship with another person who does not agree with our view of eschatology? Maybe you would. But I think we really need to approach this issue with a lot of humility. Um, you know, if we, if we come at this with, with an attitude of pride and superiority and thinking we have all the answers, it's not of God because we don't. There are, there are problems with every view of eschatology that aren't quite solved satisfactorily. You know, when, when humility is seen as, as lack of courage or, or weakness, you know, we really run the, disc, the risk of uh, thinking too highly of ourselves. Um, 
you know, we, we can't marginalize, we can't demean, we can't demonize people who don't agree with us. Yeah, I've, I've watched um, long debates on these issues and I've noticed something. There, there's one that's interesting if you want to look it up. It's uh, John Piper. It's an evening on eschatology and he's got three people rec- representing the three major views, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. It's very obvious, very clear that these guys consider them, they're each other brothers in, in the Lord. None of them would accuse any other of not being a Christian or not believing in the Bible or not having a high view of the Bible or not caring or, or being careless or whatever, you know. We need, we need to be aware of the, the dangers of spiritual pride. We need to uh, really get away from an us versus they mentality on, on these issues. Um, if, if somebody, again, adheres to the first level items in the uh, statement of faith, I am glad to accept them as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, if Jesus has saved them as he saved us, they're our, they're our brothers and sisters. We need, to, we need to treat them with love and charity, even if we do disagree with them. Um, I'd like to address something that somebody said last week that kind of niggled at me all week long. Uh, somebody said that, uh, you know, what, what we're doing with this is trying to broaden the spectrum, but we need to be narrower and narrower. Here's what Jesus said, uh, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. He said, enter by the narrow gate. We just heard that. For the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, but those who enter it, or enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Here's the thing. It is not up to us to make that that narrow gate narrower. The gate's narrower enough. Jesus, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. By me. That is very narrow. We don't need to further constrict the, the way to salvation. We don't need to put a lock on the gate. We don't need to add extra gates to keep people out. You know, in, in Acts, there was, there was a group that we just talked about in our, our sermon today, the, the Judaizers who wanted to keep people out. They wanted to narr- make the gate narrower. They wanted to insist that if you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to be a Jew first. You're going to have to be circumcised. And I'm sure that they were able to dig into the scripture and build a really good case for this and talk for hours. I know that because it says so. It says there was a long debate when the church got together to discuss this and to debate it. And the great thing is that they were able to get together and discuss and debate it. And they came up with something which actually broadens the acceptability of, of what it takes. It says, let's not, they, they said, let's not make it difficult, any more difficult than we need to for the Gentiles. Acts 15, 10 through 10 says, after there'd been much debate, 
Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows my heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, what you are putting God... Or, why are you putting God to the test by pl- placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's broadening thing. That, that's not narrowing things. The gate's narrow enough. We don't need to make it more narrow. And this wasn't a lack of courage on the part of the the church. They were not diluting the gospel. This this was an act of love. It was an act of humility. It was an act of inclusion. It was a willingness to discuss this and debate it and to actually listen to the other views. But the church came together and made a decision. You know, we just like them, we need to embrace those who've been saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, uh, you know, all believers, circumcised, uncircumcised, were able to have full fellowship in the in the church through Christ, who broke down the barrier. Paul talks about that in Ephesians. Yeah, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's very narrow. We don't need to add to that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. We're not saved through grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus circumcision, or plus anything else. Not premillennialism, for instance. So, in this issue that's that's before us here, we need to not place a yoke on the neck of the disciples to, to keep them out of fellowship with us. You know, we should not be in the business of constructing barriers for people to fellowship with us. You know, Jesus talked about the scribes and Pharisees along these lines. He says, you tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He's talking to the uh, scribes and Pharisees. You know, Paul, what did he emphasize? He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Millennialism is a secondary issue. It's, it's not a fundamental doctrine of, of the gospel. It, it's important. It is. It's relevant. Uh, but we cannot, we cannot put up barriers. We cannot refuse full, full fellowship with our brothers and sisters who don't agree on our, with us on our millennial view. Or our view on circumcision or our view on what Bible to use. You know, again, it's, it's an issue of unity versus division. 
Jesus chided the religious leaders for trying to keep people out. Uh, So why should we impose a burden, a doctrinal burden of conformity on our brothers and sisters? Uh, Again, we need humility. Uh, We need to realize that we don't see everything with crystal clarity. You know, the Bible says we see things dimly like a, a blurry mirror, essentially. You know, there, there are things that are shrouded in mystery. Revelation is a very difficult book. It's full of symbolism. It's very difficult. People who have studied it all their lives will, will readily admit that. It's a, it's a tough book to get through and to understand. Uh, Dr. Daryl Bach at DTS said those exact words. We need to search the scripture, we need to discuss, and we need to lay down our pride. We need to embrace those who have been saved through faith, by, I mean, by grace, through faith in, in Jesus. You know, what, what's the reason that there are hundreds of denominations in the United States and, and tens of thousands in the world? It's because people are much bigger on exclusion than, than inclusion. Um, it's because maybe we're, we're unable to major on the majors and, and minor on the, on the minors. Um, church has never been in full agreement on, on eschatology. Uh, there, there is no watertight system. Uh, I do believe premillennialism makes the most sense. Absolutely. But we need to approach this with humility. You know, if we, if we divide over every secondary issue, if we divide over every tertiary issue, that's two, that's three. Um, you know, each of us, the, the logical conclusion is each of us will be our own one-person denomination because I don't think that we're, any of us are going to agree on absolutely everything there's always going to be something that we need to discuss and debate. Uh, Jesus is returning. We need to be ready. We need to love His appearing. Uh, I don't. I don't know how we're going to be ready if we're, you know, fighting amongst ourselves and excluding our brothers and sisters. Though, you know, the the important thing is how we live our Christian life today. That's readiness, being dressed for action, keeping our lamps burning. You know, we need to eagerly anticipate Jesus' personal, bodily, and glorious return. It says it'll happen at a time known only to God. We need to live in constant expectancy. It's our blessed hope, and this anticipation of his return motivates us to godly living Sacrificial service and energetic mission. That's, that's what the statement of faith says. Be dressed for action. Keep your lamp burning. You don't know when he's coming. That's what it says. That's, that's what's important.